Steve and Kevin review Corset 2020 for Vintage on episode 92 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 92 of So Many Insane Plays, our Magic 2020 Corset review. I'm Kevin Crone with Steven Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We have a few normal announcements for this episode, Steve. (laughs) Upcoming tournaments in both of our areas. Uh, For me in Grand Rapids, Michigan, it's on Sunday, July 28th at the Gaming Warehouse. That's our regular monthly event now, which we've been drawing a a, a modest crowd for. But it's it's funny. Every event features a churn of about four players. (laughs) So we're only getting six to eight, (laughs) but there's four different (laughs) players at every event. So we've got about 20 players in the area. They just can't get more than eight of them together in the room at once. Well, that's good. Uh, critical mass. Yeah, we're, it's coming along. It's coming along. So you've got an event coming up at Udo? I do. Uh, Sunday, July 21st, there will be uh, a July Vintage at Udomonio Games in Berkeley. You're in the Bay Area. Come play some vintage, hang out with friends, community members. It should be a good time. I have not been able to personally make it to a Udo game in some time, mostly because of my asynchronous travel schedule and then trip to Europe and then house-based stuff. But I'm hoping to make it if I can. I would love to play some paper vintage. I hope you get to. So, Kevin, I, I have to admit, I'm really looking forward to our report cards. I'm feeling really good about my grades coming in <laughs> for, for War of the Spark and Horizon. I have a feeling you're going to take a, a, a little bit of a beating, a little bit of a drubbing. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'll take my licks. It's fine. <laughs> I've, I've been watching, you know, for example, Ashiok has a, a pretty good clip of top eight appearances. Yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, you know, so even the fringe cards that I feel like I got a really good read on both War of the Spark and Modern Horizon. And I, I took the over, I think, on most of the War of the Spark things. But the announcement here is that we basically have had three sets that have made created vintage playables, new vintage playables in three sequential months, mm-hmm. May, June, July. So at this time, we're recording early July. We're not quite ready to give our report card for War of the Spark. But we'll do that in our next separate, right, Kevin? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. We'll have to we're we're off schedule here a little bit because of the release schedule, but we will make sure that we get our report card in for that after the the normal three month window that we use as our standard uh, has elapsed. Right. You know, I'd be happy to to do based upon the two month, but I think <laughs> to be fair to Kevin, we need to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it's going to make some a, things better and some things worse. I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, the the card I was really hot on in uh, in War of the Spark that that really saw almost no top eight action in the first month or so is a card we're going to talk about, Dreadwort Arcanist. That was something that that I spent a lot. I was very jazzed about, and I feel like if you missed that show, you should go back and listen to my prediction around that and how excited I was about yeah. that card. And I think I proved to be that on. Don't you think, Kevin? Well, obviously the numbers are not right in yet, but the card is great. I've played with it yeah. in our, some of our local events. Justin Franks got second at SCG Con with it. 
I think the card is awesome, and I think it actually probably has a long future in Vintage. Long tail. Yeah, yeah. but there's there's just so much of, uh, volatility in the format right now. But for the whole month of May, I was grinding with it on Magic Online, you know, doing leagues, three, one, three two, four ones, mostly mm-hmm. four ones, and um, it wasn't really appearing. No one I played against had it, you know. None of, then all of a sudden, it's like everywhere after the SCG Con. Um, yeah. So anyway, we're really excited to do... I think we've we've really nailed it. Like these are some of our best predict <laughs> set predictions. Honestly, War of the Spark and Modern Horizons. We've really nailed them. When I, when a lot of the players were were missing them. It also, I, I'm really excited about my the segment we recorded on Force of Vigor, which I think might might be one of my best segments ever in terms of really <laughs> getting it. You know, actually, nice. just just to footnote this, and we'll get into this more in, in the future. Like I now view Force of Vigor in like the rarefied air of Force of Nature and Leyline of the Void as like yeah. really powerful and incredibly timely and important it's fu- um, unique printing it's funny you said force of nature <laughs> sorry <laughs> i think, I think you meant force of will <laughs> force of will right yeah. force of will force of um, nature it's funny to go back and look at that card name from alpha and what how we would design a card with that name now right <laughs> <laughs> well you know the, the what's also funny i i sent you a message about this earlier this week in 2006 Patrick Chapin wrote a Star City Games article mm-hmm. in which he had proposed a half dozen green cards for Vintage. Kind of in a, in a period in which workshops were doing really well, and maybe they were a little too good. You know, we were just out of the Trinosphere era a year earlier, and they kept printing good workshop cards. And um, and and Patrick had a, car, a card called Acidic Slime, I think it was, or Acidic Slug. Acidic Slug, yeah. Slug. It's 1GG, and it's, uh, it's basically, it's removed X green cards from your hand from game destroy X artifact. Yeah, and the slug itself. And the slug itself. Yeah. Very interesting kind Which of is exactly what Force of Vigor is now, but it's locked in it too. And it's better because it it can hit enchantments. Oh, right. Naturally, it, naturally. And I mean, but it it, it can't, it's not a creature, so you can't do it that way. And it's also it is interesting to compare them because acidic slug is functionally uncounterable. <laughs> oh yeah, know? that's a good point. It's the equivalent of channel. Right, exactly, yeah. or or fairy macabre effect. That kind which of which would be a dramatic improvement in vintage, I would say. Not Over for dredge, yeah, not for dredge because dredge has to address leyline. But against workshops, uh, having it be a non-spell would just be incredible. <laughs> True. <laughs> anyway, I, that 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 would allow you to get around spheres, is what you're saying. Precisely. Yeah. Oh, but um, you know what? Then it, you, then you could shut it off with revoker, though. <laughs> oh good point so it's, this is interesting all these little yeah. trade-offs right design is fantastic that's that's vintage yeah. um people should check out that patrick chapin article you can google it from 2006 you'll be able to find it based upon what i just said but one other note you know we're going to talk more about this when we do our report card but between now early july and the vintage championship in at the beginning of november there are two more sets to actually enter the vintage card pool there's Commander 2019, which will arrive on August 23rd, which is the day before the next banned and restricted list announcement. <laughs> and if past is any prediction, there's a really good chance we'll get one or more vintage playables out of Commander. And then on October 2nd, Archer, which is the code name for the fall expansion set, will arrive. So if, if you're trying to test or plan for the vintage championships, don't get too far ahead of yourself at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're only right. going to have about a month of knowing the full set for that fall release. Which is really exciting because things yeah. won't have fully coalesced by then. Yeah, um, I love it. Just just to pivot into our next or, or our subsequent discussion, 
Um, we are actually in a little bit of a weird spot, Kevin, where you know the, the main topic for our show today is Magic 2020 Corset, M2020, or M20, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but the set officially becomes legal after our show is recorded, but it's, it was allowed and brought into Magic Online on July 2nd because the Magic Online development team or whomever wanted to get it into the update before the July 4th holiday. So we have this weird period where, in essence, a set is legal on Magic Online a full 10 days before it's legal in paper. Yeah, it's wild. I'm not, I'm not saying this is the first time this has ever happened, but it's just another instance of that, and we're in this kind of interregnum period. Um, so, um, so the point I'm trying to make is that um, I have the benefit of having tested with and played with some of the cards that we're going to review today. So it's mm-hmm. not just a cold set of predictions. I'll have had a little bit of experience with it. Yeah, it's not the first time we've had some uh, information of this style while reviewing a set, but it is worth noting. So before we get into our set review, I would like to talk about one other thing that is topical, and that is your recent success with Dredge, uh, specifically in the format championship, or that is the, <laughs> the playoffs for the format championship. Well, sure. Where would you like me to start? Well, why don't we t- why don't we start by talking about what the format championship is, Kevin? Yeah. So, if you recall our episode, gosh, it was late last year, I think, when format championships were announced by the mothership by Wizards of the Coast. It's it's worth revisiting that a little bit. So, yeah. Each each major format on Magic Online, that is um Modern, Legacy, Vintage, and Pauper, those are the eternal formats, well, quasi-eternal formats have their own magic online championship which right. is a qualifier event meaning no. you have yes yeah you right. have to yep. qualify for that event and that event leads directly to the mythic championship formerly known as the pro tour yep. so yep. what we have is a, se- a series of events kind of like a waterfall that uh, starts with format challenges which are the challenges we know and love which earn you points right and you need a specific amount of points 35 points to join a format playoff that's the event that you just took second place in. Right. A format playoff with sufficiently high uh, finishes qualifies you then for the format championship, which is a qualifier for the Magic Online Championship, always otherwise known as the Mox. <laughs> right. So there's this four-stage operation that was introduced at the end of last year that gives players of these eternal formats, Modern Legacy Vintage pauper online a path all the way to the pro tour there's actually two pathways so (laughs) everything you said is is accurate but Mm -hmm. a little bit misleading at the end Mm -hmm. if you win the format championship you get an invitation to the magic online championships but you also get an invitation to the mythic championship the next mythic championship the next pro tour so each of the format champions, uh, the format champions get an invitation to the mythic championship you're right i skipped that step so you can go straight there by winning the format championship, which is invite only. That is, right. you have to have, have qualified to get... through the playoff. Yes. Yeah. And so the only thing I missed is uh, what portion of the playoff gets qualified for the format the, the championship? Top eight, the top eight for each playoff qualifies for the championship. And there's only four playoffs, yeah. basically on a quarterly basis, which means that the it's pretty remarkable, actually. The, the format championship is a 32-player event, and half of, half of those... Uh, slots have already been filled. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm glad I got mine while I could. <laughs> <laughs> um, but t- t- so you need 35 format points to qualify for the playoff. 
-hmm. And then you need to top eight the playoff to qualify for the format championship. And if you get first place in this 32 player tournament, which is, I guess, pretty good odds, you (laughs) automatically, this is the, this is actually the prizes for it. Invitation to the mythic championship, invitation to the magic online championship, format championship champion title, format championship avatar, 144 magic online boosters, four regular magic online sets, one premium magic online set and a thousand play points. So it's pretty un- a pretty unbelievable. Um, it's a pretty hefty prize. Prize, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you can literally win a 32 player vintage tournament and qualify for the Pro Tour. Yeah, is basically what it says. <laughs> now, so you're on your way. I'm on my way. I don't know that I would play on the Pro Tour if I qualified for it. Um, the <laughs> one caveat though is if you top eight a format playoff and you have already top eighted one, then the invitation to the format playoff falls to the next highest player. Yeah, so, so it can go down to ninth or 10th place. Right. And there is some interesting stuff that's happened to get points. So they changed the rules for leagues. You norm- you previously had to go 4-1 or 5-0 to get format points. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go 3-2, and two, you get one format point. So <laughs> if you go 3-2, and two, 35 times, leagues, <laughs> you're qualified. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of ways to get points. If you go 4-2, and two, you get... If you go 4-2, and two, you get... Two points, right? All right. Here we go. Yeah, if you go four and two, four and one, you get two points. If you go five and zero, oh, you get five points. And in the vintage challenges, if you win a vintage challenge, mm-hmm. you get straight up thirty-five points, yeah. which is the, the threshold for entering the playoffs. Yeah, so exactly. every challenge winner is automatically qualified for the playoffs. In our spring episode, Kevin, you and I were debating or speculating rather how many players would qualify for the end of March yeah. playoff, and I, I think you predicted less than thirty-two. I think you said. And it ended up being, or in the 30s, right? And the reason it's so unbelievable is because the playoff was two points to make here. The format playoffs have great prizes. I mean, for Magic Online, the prizes go all the way down to 64th place. So the EV is huge. Yeah, and you basically get, 64th place gets 10 treasure chests, which is like, I don't know, 21 tickets, (laughs) maybe even more than that. Maybe like 25 tickets, and that's like 20 bucks. So you don't even have to pay money to enter the event and you can basically walk away with 20 some dollars. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The Um, EV is incredible on that event. It is. And if you finish in the top 32, you're making big bank. I got second. I got a hundred treasure chests and 500 play points. Although (laughs) first place is 150 treasure chests. So I basically got equivalent to like winning a vintage challenge. Unfortunately, in the last one that I played in, there were 65 players. So one person (laughs) didn't get prizes. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> and it would be on breakers probably yeah 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 um, <laughs> oh, that's that's some bad luck right there but everyone but one person got prizes <laughs> <laughs> um the eight the top eight players uh all qualified for the format championship and right now the qualifiers include me and montolio from the vsl i don't know if anyone else is some european players but it's really exciting and i cannot wait the, the actual format championship is i think the first week in january so um it's gonna be awesome it is and the reason i really wanted to make top eight oh my entire goal was just to make top eight of this playoff was because you know as players realize how great this championship tournament is going to be and how important it is it's going to get harder and harder to qualify and so i figured that had a really good metagame deck and i wanted you know i was good read the entire reason i've been playing i so i've only played two big magic online tournaments all year both in the beginning of june and then this format with the challenge and then this format playoff both dredge um and i top aided both so i 
had a 100% top eight rate for vintage <laughs> challenges and playoffs this year. But the entire reason I even played Dread was because of how excited I got during our set review. <laughs> if we hadn't have done the set review, and specifically yeah. if you hadn't have made the point how good force of negation is in Dredge, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have even been as excited about it. Probably yeah, you had a played. ton of new cards. I mean, Modern Horizons overhauled that deck really strongly. Yeah. Because you I played packed- with Force of Vigor, Force of Negation, and Hogak, right? Exactly. All three in my vintage playoff deck. You know, what's interesting is after I top aided, I also was the first 5-0 in the vintage league a couple days later and first got the first trophy. And I, I posted on Twitter in my deck and I added Leyline of Sanctity into my sideboard. Yep. And it was so good. And <laughs> I mean, I know some, some players are disgruntled about the format, Karn, Narset, Dredge. I actually think the format is hilarious, dynamic, fun. Um, but just to give listeners a sense of how dynamic and how quickly things have changed. Um, so I got second place in the format playoff. I was unhappy with my deck. I was, unha- I was unhappy with my deck the, the first top eight I, I did at the beginning of June. I really didn't like Hollow One, so I moved it to the sideboard. I even had a discussion with you as to whether I should be playing Hollow One at all. Right. I wish I had put it in the sideboard to begin with. I just don't think it's very good. Um, but so after the dredge, there was like three dredge decks in the top eight. There was a lot of dredge hate. And so in the next couple of days, as soon as they updated the league and began the new league season, like two days later, three days later, I got the first 5-0 with Leyline of Sanctity. And I ran into multiple players who had four Ravenous Traps or four Tormod Scripts right. and, and played them all against me. And <laughs> I think a couple of my opponents had the full eight <laughs> of those. So here's what happened. So I used Leyline of Sanctity, got 5-0. Then I entered a couple more leagues and... People and almost immediately after I tweeted out my list with Leyline of Sanctity, saying how unbelievable Leyline of Sanctity was, mm-hmm. people began shifting to Tabernacle and other tech. And so then I began my response to that was to first of all I cut cut out Leyline of Sanctity and <laughs> I put the Dread Return package back in so that I could um, put Angel of Despair in to blow up Tabernacle and more land to pay for Tabernacle. So nice. there's these. I mentioned that one example to give you an example of how the metagame is so dynamic and so fastly, quickly evolving yeah. a Magic Online Leagues. It's really remarkable. And I, to me, it's, it's it, I mean, I think the format right now is incredibly skill rewarding in, in terms of metagame evolution from basically day to day. You know, how like shifting from one set of cards to another. The most recent vintage challenge, Kevin, I don't know if you noticed this. Well, first of all, Bug won three of the five challenges in June. And by yeah. bug, by challenges, I'm also including the playoff. Right, right. Um, the, the first challenge in July was won by Dark Petition Storm. Which is awesome. With, for the first time since 2015, has it won a challenge? And to me, that says that's part of the evidence of this quick metagame evolution. So I've now, I, I whittled down the number of force of, ne- force of negations in my deck, and now I've boosted them back up. The, to combat this evolving metagame. So there's this mm-hmm. kind of constant evolution and churn, and you have to really reposition yourself, whatever you're playing, whether it's the Just Guy deck or the Survival deck or Workshop. I'll give you one more example of a cool metagame evolution, and I think this deck, Kevin, <laughs> should be well, very well positioned to win, or cert- I would be shocked if it did, did not top eight um, the, the NYSE, and that is... Car- workshop Karn with main deck Defense Grid because mm-hmm. Defense Grid is the perfect anti-Force of Vigor tactic. Yeah, it completely eliminates the card, basically. 
Yes. Um, and so that's another reason I have the dread return packet um, to blow that up. And then also um, to turn more force of negation to try and counter defense. Um, yeah. But uh, so that's, that's just two examples, you know, ley line of negation to fight what people were aiming at me post the format challenge and then watching how defense grid has come in to help fight force of vigor. So, you know, this tech is in this carpool is large. There's lots of tech. Yeah. There's lots of room to maneuver, even though some people are freaking out. And I'm real. <laughs> I've been so excited to see the evolution online and what people are doing. One last thing I wanted to mention, Kevin, is I wanted to talk about the London Mulligan. We had a whole episode earlier this year on the London Mulligan. And I was in Europe during the Magic Online test trial run phase of the London Mulligan. I've now had a lot of time to play with it, experience it. And I wanted to make a couple comments about it. Have you had a chance to play with it much, Kevin? Only a little bit in paper, not much. Yeah. Well, one thing I just wanted to point is that there was some speculation, including on our show, among us, whether Dredge needs serum powder in a world with the London Mulligan. Have you come to a, de- a determination about that? Have you thought about that at all? I'm still standing by the notion that four is the right number, if that's what you mean. <laughs> I, I agree. Well, here's what's interesting about it. It's not the case that you need serum powder to find bizarre consistently because clearly the math shows that you don't, right? You can run two, two serum powders in the London Mulligan and you can consistently right. find bizarre. Right. But here's the thing. The London Mulligan does not actually help you find, help you win games in Dredge nearly as much as I thought in the sense of finding bizarre more reliably because where the London Mulligan really helps you find bizarre more consistently is once you've mulliganed below four cards. Yeah. Because that's when the London Mulligan allows you to see a, a huge number of additional cards. Because if you mulligan to two, the London Mulligan helps you see basically four more cards than you would have under the Paris Mulligan, uh, under the Vancouver Mulligan, because the Vancouver Mulligan, you get one scry. Sure. So the, the, more, the, the deeper you mulligan, the more cards you see overall. The pr- that, that's fine for just finding Bizarre, but the problem is to win with Dread, you, need to, you basically need to have a hand that's four or five cards at least. And so you don't want to have a hand with dredge that's like three cards. Your your chances of winning, even if you have bizarre in a contemporary environment, are very low. Right. You know, even in game ones, you don't have a. It's like it's dicey to keep a two or three card hand with just bizarre. Right. And so what I'm saying is that what you really need to do with dredge today is you need to be able to consistently find the bizarre, but at a five card plus hand. Mm-hmm. And so you, I think you absolutely need. The serum powder. Now, the serum powder mechanics with the London Mulligan are very odd. (laughs) And there's several steps that I think are going to be really difficult and confusing in paper, especially if people haven't played with it a lot on Magic Online. Um, This is one of the reasons I wanted to say this for the benefit of our listeners. So when you're mulliganing and you hit a powder, the procedure with powder is that you, uh, you, you first bottom, when you announce the powder, you have to first, first bottom X number of cards. So if you mulligan to five, before you exile your hand, you have to decide which two cards to put on the bottom of your deck. That will not be exiled. They will not be exiled. Then you exile the rest of your hand. So mm-hmm. this is a, and then that's just the beginning step. Then you ac- activate the powder and then you draw the cards that were in your hand after the bottom. So in this case, you draw five. Mm-hmm. And then if you decide you want to mulligan to five, which I normally do, <laughs> then you go to four. You don't go to four, you go to, you're mulligating to four, but you draw seven cards. <laughs> yeah. So that's where this gets really mechanically crazy. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. You have to get really diligent about 
how many times you've mulliganed, how many cards you should be looking at at every stage. It's really easy to get a warning oh for looking at the wrong number of cards in because this process. so many logistical steps. Yeah. You have to bottom cards before you powder, and then you have to make sure you're not, when you powder, you're not drawing seven, which would be intuitive, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, because you think you're just mulliganing again, but you're not. Yep. Yeah, be very so, yeah, it'd be very easy to just grab the seven right off the bat every time you exactly. powder. And you're gonna be in mm-hmm. big trouble if you do. Yep. Um the other thing that I noticed is strategically different, um, the London Mulligan is that you need to be very careful about the order in which you put cards on the bottom. So for mm-hmm. example, if you're playing Dread and you you have like let's say a Flamekin Zealot type card in your hand. Mm-hmm. And it's not a card you want immediately, but you know that you're gonna want it eventually or a Cabal Therapy, or a Dread Return. Yeah. You want to make sure that you stack it, not the bottom card, but <laughs> the second or third from the bottom. Yep. And the card you want to put on the bottom may be like the, I don't know, a Serum Powder or something like that. Bad so example. You, what? <laughs> Bad no, example. No, I'm saying if you have a Bazaar and you don't want to use Serum Powder. <laughs> oh, okay, I get you. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. That's right. If In you're fact, keeping the hand, you put the bottom, Serum Powder as the bottom card. Yeah. Serum Powder is usually the card I'll put on the bottom of my, bottom of my deck. More Stands to reason. Not. Yeah. Yep. And so... What all I'm saying is that if you're using serum powder, I'm just giving everyone a tip. Be very deliberate and careful about w- the order in which you stack cards on the bottom. One other, one other pro tip. There's a lot of Assassin's Trophy running around. So let's say you put on the bottom a superfluous bazaar and maybe a counterspell or something like that, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. A counterspell or a, an Icarid, and you get into a position where you're fighting over ley lines and you really need an Icarid. You, and someone... Uh, assassin's trophies you you will want to shuffle just mm-hmm. to get that icarid out of the bottom of your deck yeah so just something to be thinking about because there there aren't a lot of shuffle in fact there's zero shuffle effects in dredge normally <laughs> right <laughs> so um the 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 london mulligan a lo- creates a kind of scenario that you normally only get with like preordain you know um dig through time yeah dig through time that kind of effect yeah that's yep. right. so you need to really be thinking about that um when you're playing with the London Mulligan. Cool. Good tip. So before we get into our set review proper, we also want to talk about our SCG con predictions. We haven't had an opportunity to really do this um, since SCG Con happened and our this is our first opportunity really with Eternal Central providing the full results. So we did a, awesome. a relatively impromptu, it was only about five to ten minutes uh, prediction about l- the large portion of the metagame percentages for SCG Con. And we have those results in now. So we'll go through them quickly. Oh, and by the way, we did that as part of our spring metagame update. Right, so, right. Yeah. So we predicted the most represented deck that is grouping of decks would be shops plus Eldrazi. And we both agreed that the floor for that was 30%. Possibility of more, but 30% was the expectation. Now this is a combination of all the Karn decks and all the tribal Eldrazi decks and the the flavors thereof. We predicted 30%. The actual was 29%. Darn. Pretty <laughs> we were basically good. one player away <laughs> from, from the perfect target. Error away. Yeah. So that's a pretty good call for, on our part. Some of these other ones a little less so, but we next predicted that the the next most uh, represented group of decks would be Xerox, a combination of Jeskai and Rug primarily. I predicted 25%. Steve, you Pretty said high. 20 20% plus. 
and the actual was 17 percent wow yeah. nice within range yeah yeah so very close again one player accounts for about one and a quarter percent here because there were 82 players in the event so so your prediction of 20 percent was off by about two to three players depending on rounding next we predicted paradoxical outcome now this is interesting i said 13 to 15 percent you said 12 to 18 percent so i had as a, a larger as a total range. range yeah yeah the actual was only six percent wow Six percent. Now you and I both know, and our listeners who've been paying attention to our metagame <laughs> updates yeah. know, the paradoxical outcome has the widest variance well, from moment to moment of any deck in the metagame. Well, we predicted we made our prediction at a time when the London Mulligan had been tested on Magic Online and was legal mm-hmm. and had really given PO a boot. But PO basically collapsed to three percent in June. Mm-hmm. So I'm not at all surprised by this, but we just didn't know that PO was going to get hosed so badly post War of the Spark. Yeah. We just didn't know that. Yep. And and also that the London Mulligan was really what was keeping it afloat. So next up in terms of our predictions, we didn't do the full metagame. With the last thing we really predicted in full was Dredge. I said 12%. You said up to about 15%. You didn't have a lower part of the range, but you said 15% max. The actual was 7%. That's six players. So low turnout for Dredge. Yeah. But Dredge didn't have all the modern Horizon tools. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And we also, we didn't really consider survival. We didn't make a prediction for it, but it had 6% also. Interesting. If I, I have a suspicion that if we had considered the, the, how much survival would take from the Dredge population, that we might have lowered our predictions a bit. But the two of them combined were at 13%. We did not predict Oath or Bug or... When we predicted Big Blue, we have said there's always 5% Big Blue, which was basically right. Between Grixis control decks and blue-white control, there was 5%. But the things we didn't predict include Survival, which I said was at 6%. Oath, which had a big showing at 12%, actually the third most <clears throat> represented archetype. That's that's really interesting. I mean, that's yeah. typically much lower than you see in um, Vintage Challenge. So. Definitely. So the paper reaction for Oath was, I think, probably a reaction to the combination of Shops and Eldrazi and Xerox, right? I think right. just a lot of people felt like it was a good metagame call. And then the other, the next largest representation was Bug, which only had 3.5%. There were 15 uh, miscellaneous other decks out of 82. So there's a little bit more variance than I would have expected out of 82 decks. Some Rector Flash, Lands, uh, Grixis, Steel City, Hate Bears, that kind of so we did very, very well on Shops and Eldrazi, which was the, the definitely key the, the key at the yeah. time. Yeah, we were a little bit over predicted on Xerox and we were significantly over on PO and Red to the tune of, you know, half a dozen players in total. But right. the percentage wise is significantly over. So a mix of good and bad for us there, uh, I think. I don't know if it's a consistent lesson that Oath is overrepresented at SCGCon or at yeah. recent paper events. I'd have to map some experience with that over time. But I think maybe you and I need to consider that next time we make a prediction for champs this year or for NYSE, something like that. For sure. I mean, we're in the middle of this weird period where there was a three-week test of the London Mulligan. It disappeared. Yep. All yep. these new sets are coming in. It makes I think being within 25% overall is, is, is really <laughs> decent. It was a you difficult know. time to predict, and we're, it sounds like a little bit of scapegoating for us, but honestly, there's so much dynamicism in the format, and it was hard to draw some precedence for the reasons you just described. Well, I really wanted to go to SUG Con. I ended up playing in the Top 8 in the Vintage Challenge that weekend instead, but what was, what's interesting is the kind of juxtaposition of it is kind of sad. I mean, it was like, you know, 
all these people are playing paper vintage, but they're playing basically an, an outdated format. <laughs> lame because duck. The, because, yeah, it was a lame duck format because War of the, I mean, Modern Horizons was allowed on Magic Online and they're playing without it. Yeah. So, it was, so it was, was especially strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I felt bad for the paper players because they were, you know, Cyrus and, and other folks were talking how great the Karn deck was, but that Karn deck doesn't exist in the same way anymore. You yeah. know, it, just like a day later. So <laughs> anyway, it was, it was, it was odd. It was, it was like a um, parallelism, parallel worlds or something. Yeah. Um, yep. So we've already addressed how this is the spot where our report card would normally go, but that'll have to wait to a, for a future episode for War of the Spark. So let's get into Corset 2020. Kevin, they've been really diligent about putting lots of new cards into these core sets, basically since M11, if I recall correctly. Um, how many actual new vintage playables or cards in the vintage card pool are introduced by this set? 174 brand new cards in this wow. set. Yeah, that does include a couple of the cards from the Planeswalker decks, of course, which are typically overcosted, but still legitimately <laughs> legal. Yeah, you're right. That's on the high side for core sets, historically speaking. And that's why we do have a dozen or so cards to discuss here today. We normally start a set review by talking about the mechanics of a set. Given that this is a core set, there are no brand new mechanics in this set. No new keywords or anything like that. But there are some things that they haven't been shy on complexity in this set. So (laughs) much to our chagrin from many, many set reviews of late, complexity is no stranger to this set, much like other recent sets. Let's start off with one such card, and that is Mystic Forge. Four mana, generic, artifact. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. You may cast the top card of your library if it's an artifact card or a colorless non-land card. Then the activated ability, tap and pay one life, exile the top card of your library. Well, I just want to give credit, first of all, um, our fellow podcast on the Eternal Central Network, Serious Vintage uh, had the honor of previewing this card, and Andy Probasco was a guest host and did a really nice article presenting some deck lists with this card. And I think one of the deck lists in particular hit on something really important about this card, but we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> well, and this card is pretty high on the list of things you were referring to when you mentioned that since these cards are available for play currently online, we've already had the opportunity to either play them ourselves or see them in action on stream, that kind of thing. And there's just there's just no way to avoid the fact that this card is very powerful and vintage, and it plays right into some of the strengths of existing decks, as well as challenging deck builders such as us with uh, challenges and how you could maximize it. This is uh, no there's no surprise that this is a colorless or all artifact version of Experimental Frenzy to a point, but at it has certain key benefits over Experimental Frenzy. Namely, it doesn't have the drawback that that card has in that you can't play cards out of your hand. And it also has an extra enabling feature to help you clear the top card of your library. I'm not exactly sure why they felt that was necessary, (laughs) given that the card's already good enough without that ability, in my opinion. But it's also worth noting that, so you can't ever play a land off of this, 
But the, the clause that describes what cards you can play was very carefully written. It says you may cast the top card of your library if it's an artifact card or a colorless non-land card. What that means is an artifact could be played if it had a color. For example, Bolas' Citadel. If you had Bolas' Citadel on top of your library, you could play it. And a non-artifact card could be played as long as it's not a land, which means you could play an Eldrazi, right? Any of the Eldrazi that's colorless. And it's also worth noting that those that are devoid count as colorless. So you could play a um, Thought Not Seer or Reality Smasher or Matter Reshaper, any of those Eldrazi, for example. It's pretty clear that this card is pretty bonkers and that you can, you can, at base level, you could just add it to an existing workshop shell and it would probably produce a ton of card advantage in an average game. But you can tailor your deck just a little bit toward this card by shaving some lands and adding some more mana artifacts, a la Grimmonoliths and or um, Voltaic Keys and or Mox Opals, and really go whole hog as a combo with this deck. Not to mention Sensei's Divining Top, of course. Steve, how much of this card have you played yourself or seen in action online I, I today? Played a league, I played a league with it, and I mm-hmm. played against it actually more than maybe two leagues, and played against it quite a bit. In those decks that you played or played against, would you describe them as similar to existing workshop decks or more dedicated combo builds? Yes, I've seen the full range. So okay. um, I have seen, I'd say, four basic approaches. The first is you take that Karn Drazi deck, right? That we've mm-hmm. seen before, and you just smash. You basically smash four four of these in there, and yeah, it works not too very, tar- not too hard to do. No, it works very well. Maybe you just cut down on some like Karn Cyan of Urza because spheres. Do you cut spheres? <laughs> probably not, but it okay. depends. Um, yeah. It depends. And Manifold Key is very good with this card. The Grim Model is very good with this card. That deck is designed to get to four mana on turn one. Yeah. Um, and Manifold Key also allows you to untap it to exile multiple cards to cycle through and get more mana more quickly. Yep. And the Karn, the Karn Shop combo deck already has a ton of acceleration be- between Grim Monolith and Mox Opals and that sort of thing. So it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of naturally well-fitted for that. Um, I've seen that deck. Then I've also seen a shop deck that's similar to that, but cuts down on the spheres and plays Foundry Inspector. And one version has Foundry Inspector that I saw Rich Shea playing. Another had um, that uh, Michael Scheffenacre and Andy Probasco had suggested at Helm of Awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can go like cost reduction route, different cost reduction route. Um, and I don't know whether some of those had, some may have had spheres, may, some may not have. Some didn't have wastelands, some did. So you, it's a little less like a, a kind of a shop prison deck and more like a, sh- a streamlined sharp shop combo deck in that yep. sense. And then I've seen blue versions that have a smattering of blue or more than a little bit of blue. Some have force of will, some don't. Um, that use like blue ancient tomb, grim monolith, that sort of thing. Um, I ran into that in at least a one or two league. And then um, was the other. Oh, the, and then by the way, with respect to the the version with with helm or without helm, I've seen versions that just use a lot of top. And top is basically insane with it because oh, yeah. you just it becomes Yawgmaw's bargain at that point. Yeah. Top in this card. Um, so those are the four approaches I've seen. The most devastating version is the one that I've played against the, the Team Academy version players. And I ran into several of them running the, the list that has um, Defense Grid and um, uh, Top and Karn. That list, that list, I think, might be one of the best decks in the format right now, if not the best. Mm-hmm. 
It's just, I mean, the defense grid main deck is so good against Dredge, but it's also great against the control deck. And all it has to do is resolve one four-mana spell, either Karn or um, this, and it's basically going to just win the game. It's like, you know, obviously because Karn can get Mycosynthlatus or Time Vault or whatever, and then this just, it's just designed to draw your deck at that point, you know? Do you know how many keys that list was playing? Those lists, I I suspect, all run at least three keys, probably more between the main and side. Um, yeah. because you really need the keys. If you get hit on a, a patch of land, you, you, you need to, to keep going. Now, top obviously solves that problem Yeah, because you can just draw the land, but the key helps you get to the top, right? <laughs> Naturally. So like if you need to remove an ancient tomb or a shop or something like that, um, the deck is really, really good. Um, and, and mystic forge might be better than Karn in some matchups because like with Karn, obviously Karn is insane against dredge, but if you don't have the extra mana, you, you need six mana for Microsynth Lattice. You need a key in play and extra mana for the Time Vault. Like Mike, the, if you get Mystic Forge first, you're just going to hit the Karn eventually, and then you'll have infinite mana. Mm-hmm. So um, this is it's basically kind of like a four mana bargain. You know, obviously <laughs> it's a little a bit more conditional and build around a little bit more. Um, it's it's really broken. I mean, I, I wonder what has motivated Wizards design team to push spells with this crucial opening clause on it in the last six months or a year we've reviewed several of these we reviewed yeah. experimental frenzy and then what was the second one that we reviewed that we said had identical text oh of bolus is citadel right right and now this um this is kind of like it feels kind of like a four mana bolus is citadel honestly it's kind of what it's like <laughs> i'm well, not functionally kidding. sure i mean yeah. under, understood so it seems pretty clear that this card is just now uh a primary fixture in workshop decks for the format. Just as Karn the Great Creator quickly became that, now the two might compete for space because you couldn't it's difficult well, to have fully. Complimentary. I don't think they yeah. compete. I think they, they boost each other. I mean do you think it's going to be standard to have four of each? That's my I do. Point. In the okay. deck in the defense grid deck I just described, I do. Okay. Well fair enough. So regardless, complimentary that as they are, so there's still some room for how this deck will be built, but the simple truth is it's here to stay. And I don't think there's any, there's not any strong way to really punish this deck for, by, from playing this card. You can't, like, spheres no. don't, don't stop the combo. They can still it. just go wide. Yeah, you can't needle it. I mean, you, you can, can needle but it's it, not going to do you'll anything. Hurt, you'll take off the, the filtering function, but you can't stop it. <laughs> right. And, um, and they can just get around that filtering with top, right? So that right. doesn't even kill the combo. And things like null rod effects don't even kill the combo either, right? Which they were can, things, by the way, we said were great about slowly roll Citadel. Out. Those were those were benefits. Yeah. We talked about how revoker you can't revoker the Citadel. You know? Yeah, yeah. In my opinion, and this is where defense grid comes in. In my opinion, this is one of those cards that you simply have to stop it from entering play or remove it the moment it does. And defense yes. grid, as you said, is the perfect foil to both of those approaches. Defense grid is going to be a heavily played artifact in the next six months. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. So how so how do we go about putting together uh, a method for predicting this card? Like you can start with just the volume of say workshop decks or more recently Karn decks. That is Karn the Great Creator. That's the the Karn won't be a universal representative necessarily, but is it fair to say that every workshop deck in the format going forward is this? I don't think 100%, no. but I think a very high percentage. So I went back and looked, Kevin, at the post-War of the Spark shop decks. 
And we didn't, we haven't used this episode to talk about the metagame much, but let me just give you one stat that that was very interesting. Okay. So workshop decks in June overall were 23% of top eight. And given how popular Karn was, you might imagine that that, that like, that was all Karn deck. But actually the breakdown, I, we need new taxonomies for shop decks now because the car, shop Karn combo is basically so different than, um, traditional shop decks that it really needs to be classified differently and when we last recorded and talked about this it might have been in our spring update i made the point that most of the karn decks were eldrazi deck mm-hmm. I, I don't i think there's been a shift i think that the the shop karn deck is now more popular but here's the thing here's what i wanted to point out of the nine shop decks that made top eight in june and constituted the 23 aforementioned 23 percent only only three of those nine were karn combo the other six really? were just traditional shop aggro. So in, at least in June top eights, the ratio of shop aggro to Karn combo, shop Karn is two to one. Hmm. Okay. Two Interesting. Thirds, two, two parts to one part. So um, yeah, I, I thought that was kind of a little surprising too. So it's, it's, it's the difference between like the hot thing that gets the headline and takes up the news, news, you know, the news space versus what's actually happening on the ground. Right. I knew that it wasn't a hundred percent, but I had no idea it was that far in favor of workshop aggro still that's interesting so, so I, that suggests I, that a, at least a similar kind of pattern could manifest with the forge right right if shops in total are putting up about a dozen appearances between online and paper per month which i think will probably continue for the foreseeable future then it's reasonable to predict that mystic forge will put up somewhere between i don't know four to eight right depending yeah, I mean, on how much of a portion of that subgroup they take over. So let's assume that most of the Mystic Forge decks are shop decks. And let's assume that that ratio of two to one shop aggro to Karn combo for shops hold, you know, if, you know, filters into this period. I mm-hmm. think that Mystic Forge gives it a, those decks a boot. So I think we could see, it wouldn't be shocking to see for July, 40% of the shop decks are Mystic Forge Karn combo, right? Yeah, Up agreed. from 33% or something agreed. like that. Yeah, so I'm 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 inclined to predict about a half dozen a month. I'm I'm inclined to predict eighteen as my median point for this. That, that could be I don't know plus or minus ten. Who knows? But and I think that you said giving it a boost makes sense. Also, some of the workshop aggro players who hadn't adopted Karn the Great Creator, which does legitimately require structural changes to one's deck, those aggro decks could just play a couple of these forges, right? This is the kind of card that in a regular workshop aggro deck you you don't have to bend your deck toward in any way. That's just true, but you add it, and but, it's a draw engine. That's that's true, but it's I don't know I don't know that you really get that much value from it in a regular shop deck. You <laughs> probably draw like two or three cards a turn, maybe a little bit more if you go on a hot run. I'm but with the you. problem is like the wastelands and all that stuff is going to be really blocking you from keep keeping going, and the, and the yeah. spheres are going to slow you down a lot. I think there well, might I, be. A I'm not here to dispute that. I'm just pointing out that yeah, there will I would predict more Mystic Forges than Karns in total. Interesting. I, I don't know that I, I'm on board with that. I don't know. I mean, that if that's true, that's because non-shop decks are top-aiding with it. Like, no. Like ancient ancient tomb no, decks. No. Go ahead. no, what I'm saying is non-Karn decks will top-eight with this. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I hear you. I don't know. It's it's tough. I mean, yeah. but that's my prediction. I'm predicting there would be more forges than Karns in totality. Interesting. Do many we of have those a, decks will be Karn and Forge decks, as a, you've said. Do you have a re- read on how many Karn the Great Creators are appearing in top-8s? What percentage? Numbers? So, 
there's been some volatility of course in the last couple months but looking in june this is again 32 players or more one two three four five six seven eight eight karn the great creators in june and in may one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve yeah twelve twelve in may eight in june wow okay so 20 um interesting I'm inclined to think that almost almost every player who's already playing Karn the Great Creator will be playing some amount of Mystic Forge. This so, could even just be a one-of in the sideboard for that deck, right? Well, if you're extrapolating them, that's 10 a month, 10 top 8s per month, which means over a three-month period, you're talking 30. Yeah, so that's that, true. Hmm, there's there's three factors to consider. The first is, <laughs> um, what, is Karn even going to continue at that level, right? Will it exceed that level? Will it fall? Will it plateau? Right. You have right. to believe that London will reduce the amount of Karn. Possibly. That's my expectation. Or, or it could make it more consistent. Um, I mean, it, it makes everything more consistent, but right. our, our time with London before suggests that workshops will be diminished. Does it not? It does. It does. I I wonder, though, if... So, I don't think that the Helm... I don't think Helm of Awakening is going to be in the final version. I do think it's possible no. the Foundry Inspector might be. Yes. Um, that just enables free wins with top. It's... Yeah. It's too easy not to include, in my opinion. Um, well, this is so. Those are the two factors to consider. Like again, the third is then your point about London Mulligan. In the first vintage challenge of the of the month, there were zero Mystic Forges in the top eight, but there was one at nineteenth place. There was um, actually in the top in the top thirty two, there were four. Yeah. So one was in a Brian Kelly played one as a one of in a. <laughs> And actually, in still. A, yeah, I know. Yeah, in a blue. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was in a. It was in a blue deck with two ancient tombs, Mikakoro, um, some counter magic, but four Carns. He had four Carns and one Mystic Forge. Interesting. He, he got thirtieth okay. place, so he probably went X three year. Um, the nineteenth place was version list was by Ma- Michael Scheffenacre, and his was um, basically the Pravasco list. There's an 18th place list that is basically playing Karn the Great Karn combo with Fort Mystic Forge, and it doesn't look like he changed much, but added two defense grids. Actually, this looks exactly, almost exactly like the list I posted. I said I would play. I posted on the Mana Drain. Um, now that I'm looking at it closely, it, it has three Manifold Key and one Voltaic Key, Kevin. Nice. And then main deck, and then Spoiler a, another another Manifold Key in the sideboard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the last list was in 17th place and it also was a Karn the Great Creator list with two Mystic Forge compared to the other one which had other ones with the other two I just mentioned that had four and Brian Kelly's which had one. So interesting. And it, it had spheres in it. Well so it's pretty clear that the deck is not final, right? Right. I propose that we have a synthesis of what we know about what happened into workshops in totality during London last time and what we've seen of Karn's results lately. I think that Mystic Forge will put up comparable numbers to Karn, just at face value. Not necessarily for causal reasons, but just comparable. And But I think we're going to see an overall reduction in the workshop portion of the metagame thanks to London. So what That's that plausible. tells me is that less than 30, you know, if it wasn't for London, I might have predicted 20 to 30. I'm thinking half that. I'm thinking 15 to 20 because of a little bit of slow adoption, a little bit of the London effect, and so a confluence of factors. I think I'm going to take the under on that for the moment. I think I'm going to say 15. Interesting. That puts me in a very difficult spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how I know I've predicted well, I guess. <laughs> um, I think this card is just too broken. 
my it's instinct, real, real good. Yeah, my instinct says that this card is going to be more than in the, over a three month period. Yeah. Um, the three month period will encompass all of July. Well, most of July, of course, because it's only yeah. legal at the beginning of July, um, August, and September. This card could easily peak in October. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go 22. That's pretty close to what I predicted for Force of Vigor. So we're in rarefied <laughs> air here. <laughs> nice. This card is amazing. It's just simply incredible. Why do they and keep making cards with this these abilities? <laughs> I don't know. They just want people to play their whole decks, I guess. <laughs> awesome. All right, let's move on and talk about Flood of Tears. For UU Sorcery, return all non-land permanents to their owner's hands. If you return four or more non-token permanents you control this way, you may put a permanent card from your hand onto the battlefield. So it's kind so of a show-and-tell thing. This is, yeah, upheaval plus show-and-tell. Now, it's worth noting that in the vintage context, the six-mana spell is, you know, it's not easy to cast in the That's vintage the context. the very top of the curve, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're going to be dedicating extra mana production to a deck that has this card, like uh, Grim Monolith, Mana Vault, that kind of thing. But in the vintage context, it's also much easier to achieve this clause of returning four or more of your own non-token permanents for that same reason, awesome. right? Because you're, you're not going to cast this card without, I don't know, two to four mana production cards, uh, you know, paying for it. So the show and tell aspect is actually pretty cool. You can legitimately cheat out some pretty strong permanents in vintage or... You can just play this for value, right? You could, this could be part of a big mana, I don't know, uh, a Grixis Thieves style deck, right? Where the plan is to just have this as a quasi reset button and then put into play your Narset, uh, your deck, your um, what have you, your, your Notion Thief, and just tell your opponent, you know, let's reset the board, but I start out ahead. I'm, I'm really excited about uh, cost benefit analysis in life, and I get really <laughs> excited about it. And I, I really, this card kind of brings that into a sharp relief. So it asks the question, what do you get? What's the upside for this? You know, so obviously mm-hmm. there's a cost here, but to evaluate that, I need to know what I'm getting. So Kevin, yeah. what am I getting? What do you have in mind? You could throw some things out. Am I, am I getting... You're getting You're getting a Emerald very card? comprehensive... Getting- <laughs> you're getting a very comprehensive removal slash tempo card, meaning it's going to bounce... Your opponents, opponents, Moxon, their creatures, their planeswalkers, their tokens, their oath of druids, everything. It's comprehensive. So you're yeah. getting that. You're also getting a way to cheat on mana cost. Now, granted, if you had six mana, you could have played it probably already. Blightsteel Colossus notwithstanding. So the deck in question could just be getting quasi tempo from this play. Like I said, put a planeswalker back into play, activate it again. Or you could be ch- fully cheating on mana and putting in Gristlebrand, right? So this could be a role player in a deck like Burning Long, that kind of thing, as a, as a reset slash show and tell. Or it could be just a catch-all removal spell in a big mana blue deck, as I said, in the Grixis Thieves style. But basically what you're getting is uh, the, the intersection of utility and power. Right. And you're, Th- and you're paying true, a lot for it. I need to know specifically what am I getting with the cheap ability. Am I, well, getting Emrakul, am I getting Emrakul, Gristlebrand? You know, then you have to, if, you, if that's what you're trying to do, that's what you're aiming to do, then you have to weigh that against why not just run Show and Tell or why not just run Oath of right? There may oh, be yeah, answers I'm, to I, that, but... Yeah, I consider this card to be a one-of in almost any deck that would run it, in my opinion. Unless you're making use of mana production by bouncing your own mana, right. which is possible once you pass a certain threshold of quantity, of course. But unnecessary in a PO deck because you have infinite <laughs> mana anyway. Agreed. 
So yes, I completely agree. So what I'm seeing is this is a, a probably a one of role player sideboard card for any of the Burning Wish decks, but um, the sort of thing that you're just using as a kind of a catch-all reset that you get to cheat on mana. Uh, mm-hmm. To your point, I don't think it's correct to play this card in the vintage context with the plan to cheat an 8 to 15 mana card into play. That's not a good you know, plan. You know what vintage needs more of? <laughs> 8 to 15 mana card. And, and I'm not joking, because we've kind of exhausted you know, the, the, the suite there. We need more cards like that, honestly, like just to make things a little bit more interesting at the high end. You know, if there if there were a sweet card, it would be you know worth it to consider trying to cheat into play. But well, there there I mean there is such a card. Like Gristlebrand is that card. Yeah. But the problem is we've demonstrated and the current metagame. Yeah. Well, the current metagame demonstrates how it is not worth it to try and show and tell or oath in a Gristlebrand. Exactly. If there was consistent. Then, if there was, then there would be show and tell Gristlebrand decks out there, and they're not. Well, so, and it's. I don't know. It's worth noting that there were way more Oath decks at SCG Con than we expected, right? Yeah, so, I'm specifically talking about show and tell, though. Like, there's understood. nothing in, in Vintage right now that this makes card, it worth it. That, well, let me just finish the statement. There appears to be nothing. If if what exists and what sees play is evidence of value uh, or suggestive value, then we can at least provisionally conclude that there's nothing in Vintage right now that is worth building a deck around show and tell to cheat it into play. You know, either because the alternatives are better and more efficient, like Oath of Druids, or there's just nothing that is powerful enough to justify the risks with show and tell, or it doesn't have the downside. I mean, part of the problems with Gristlebrand are that it's shut off by, it, it's, it's hurt by Caracas, it's shut off by Pithy Needle and Revoker, and there are lots of things like that. You know, it's still immensely powerful, but what if you took a Gristlebrand that was more powerful? What if it wasn't, <laughs> you know, I'm serious. Right? I'm with you. I, I, it's then, funny, but I'm with you. Then, then does it shift that calculus, right? That cost benefit. You know? I um, I think that everything you're saying is true, but it's also not going to help us that much evaluate this card because right. that we don't have such a thing. So, right, it's it's a, it's a reasonable thought experiment, but it's also worth noting that this card for twice as much mana circumvents many of the problems with show and tell. If you have Pithing Needle in play, your opponent has Needle in play, yeah. you still just Flood of Tears, bounce their Needle, play your Gristlebrand, right? Right. There's no way that um, Containment Priest can interact with this card and stop Gristlebrand from coming in. Right. There's no way that uh, Sorcerer's Spyglass or Revoker, just like Needle, stop right. the Gristlebrand, at least the turn they come in. Krakus is still an issue, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But the point is, this has a lot of upside in terms of the ways that uh, Show and Tell traditionally has backfired. In vid- you're not giving your opponent anything, in fact, you're actively fighting them. And you're actively fighting many of the things that would prevent Gristlebrand from being very good. So there's something to be said for that. I don't think this. I don't think we're going to be building decks with four of these and four Gristlebrands anytime soon. Agreed. I think the only way this really sees play in current vintage, because there's no such thing as a Burning Wish deck really right now. I think the only way this sees play is maybe as a one-of role player in a big mana blue deck that can in, get incremental tempo style value from re- replaying Jace the Mind Sculptor or Notion Thief or one of the other Planeswalkers. You know, getting two activations out of a walker each in a turn and resetting the board. In certain matchups, if you brainstorm with Jace and then Flood of Tears replay Jace, brainstorm with Jace, that's that's going to set you up into a pretty big winning position. Don't forget that this has the paradoxical outcome effect of paying repaying half of your mana you put into it. Right? I know. If you bounce three I, mocks and you get that mana that's back. priced in, yeah. Yeah. So I don't think this card is quite right, but I think it's it has some potential applications. Is that the metagame's not right for it right now? It's too expensive. If the, there I was mean, a, when, if there when was the workshop card, combo decks can still play spheres, this card is almost hopeless. 
if there was a card that you could cheat into play that essentially had no um, no way to stop it with a pithy needle type effect and effectively won the game as soon as it hit the battlefield, then I think you could design a deck that had four show and tell and some number of this to get you to four, five or six show and tell effects, mm-hmm. right? And, and assuming it's not a creature because then you would use sneak sneak attack, right? But there was some spell that basically just said you win the game when it hit. And it couldn't be easily disrupted with, you know, revoker type effects or, you know, or just removal. There then, is omniscience. Yeah, but that's not, that doesn't get you quite there. That's another step towards something else. You know, that's the problem. Is well, that there. All that's, uh, yeah. Um, they're just, I mean, probably, it's probably a good thing that nothing like that exists in vintage in the, <laughs> in the magic card pool. Yeah. But um, until that day, I, I just, I don't see enough of a benefit to warrant the cost. So I'm zero. I'm zero as well, but it's a it's a fun exercise to discuss this card and its potential application. Next up, drawn from dreams to UU sorcery. Look at the top seven cards of your library, put two of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Keen observers will recognize the text of this card <laughs> as very close to dig through time. Right. Save the the order of the cards at the bottom and the lack of delve, etc. Yeah, this is basically dig through time uh, for four mana at sorcery speed with no other modifier. Dig Through Time, famously restricted in Vintage, after it had its uh, extended run as a four of while its cousin Treasure Cruise took the stage. <clears throat> is there any world in which huh. a consistently four-mana version of Dig Through Time is playable? No. Yeah. Not that I can think of in the current iteration of Vintage. Things are just happening too quickly to be able to ramp up to four. I don't even think Jace the Mind Sculptor is that playable right now. I don't even know if it's playable at all. Yeah. This card compares very unfavorably with Paradoxical Outcome, too. In my opinion. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I don't think we need to dig too much further on Drawn from Dreams. It's just, it's nice that it's consistent, but it's not right for this format. I like that the, the name of the card is has a, you know, a syntactical similarity to uh, Dig Through Time. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. That's a good good call out. Next, we have one Cavalier of Flame. Two RRR, Creature, Elemental Knight, with a heck of a text box. So, activated ability. 1R colon. Creatures you control get plus 1 plus 0 and gain haste until end of turn. When Cavalier of Flame enters the battlefield, discard any number of cards, then draw that many cards. When Cavalier of Flame dies, it deals X damage to each opponent and each planeswalker they control, where X is the number of land cards in your graveyard. And it's 6-5. Are you thinking about this as a dredge finisher? Is that what this is about? That is the context in which our listeners promoted this one, yes. Interesting. I, and I had not um, actually considered... I, yeah. I glazed right over this card when I was looking over the set. I was like, okay, that's a limited card. And it actually... <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about its, its various abilities in the Dread Return context. Yeah, right? yeah, sure. Can I the go first ability requires a two-mana activation. Yes. If you could do it, it would be very synergistic with Dredge's Dread Return plans. Right, it would right? be a Flame lot effectively, yep. But modern dredge decks are never in a position to produce the two mana, right? Right. You would have to dramatically overhaul how you pr- constructed a dredge deck to expect a dread return and have one R at your disposal. Agreed. So barring a major overhaul of the archetype, which happens every couple of years, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't consider months. that to be, yeah, I, I don't consider that to be an active part of the equation. The second ability is, is 90 plus percent of the value when it enters the battlefield you can discard any number of cards and draw that many it's I a actually miniature disagree with you i don't think it's that's a miniature 90. wheel of fortune yeah i don't think that's 90 percent. it's but that's fine i mean it's actually more of a Telerian wins but sure sure <laughs> sure um 
and you get to control the amount and it doesn't affect your opponent right so right it's very focused and in most cases in dredge not most i don't know in a lot of cases you're just going to discard the however many cards you had two to four right in the mid game right and right. pick up that many and do a whole bunch more dredging and end the game probably then the third ability which comes into play when this dies says it deals x damage to your opponent and all their planeswalkers for the number of lands in your graveyard Owing to my first comment about the mana production necessary for the first ability, the second ability is not reliably going to produce a great deal of damage. No. You know, not how many lands are in your, in your recent list? In the Steve, mana six list. or seven? Yeah, I, I'll run three, two to three petrified fields, sometimes one strip mine, and four yeah. bazaars. And that goes down so, after your serum powder once or twice, of course. Exactly. Yeah. So in the average, the median game for dredge, when you're dread returning which i know your most recent list doesn't always do even but when you're dread returning for this you know you're looking at most probably seven i think yeah but on average three or four yeah Yeah, if you you have 20 cards left in your deck probably three or four um now if if this was four months ago and you have six lands in your sideboard this could be a a nice finisher you could be hitting eight nine ten damage you know in addition to the creatures you have on board but and it could there could be some versions of... I mean, you're never going to get to 20 with this, right? There's no version of Dredge that's ever going to play that many lands. No. But in combination with Creeping Chill doing 9 to 12 damage, and then a build that has 10 or 15 lands, if you could mill your the, the majority of your deck and 9 them with Creeping Chill and then animate one of these and sack it to a Cobble Therapy, it's not out of the question to do the next 10 or whatever with lands in your graveyard if your build has 15 or 16 lands. There could be a, a, a direct-to-the-dome version of Dredge with this card in Dread and Creeping Chill that never has to attack. And when you put it in that context, the second ability of this card enables that kind of situation. If you get to Dread Return this, it facilitates dredging the rest of your deck to ensure that you've got the right land count and, and all of the Creeping Chills to, to finish the job, right? Right. So what if you had a version of Dredge that was more all-in on Dread Return? It had two or three of these, four Creeping Chills, and could win the game without ever entering the uh, the red zone. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there are other versions of Dredge that run Blood Gas and have more mana. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because mana list is on the come right now, that doesn't mean that mana versions are dead forever. I think if right. in a mana version with... Possibly with Creeping Chill, though mana versions probably are less likely to have Creeping Chill. I think this could be a consideration. Doesn't mean it's a very serious consideration, but it, it is a consideration. I mean, it can, as you said, it can help you finish the dredge job. It does two things. It helps you finish dredging a little bit more, and it's a final shot kill. Um, yep. So certainly worth considering. It helps answer certain hate cards like Tabernacle. Or Ensnaring uh, Bridge. Yeah. Or Ensnaring Bridge, yeah. So it does sidestep those particular tactics. It's still entirely weak, of course, to Leyline and, and Graftiger's Cage. Well, Creeping Chill gets around Graftiger's Cage, but this card would not. Yeah. I think it's just another of many, many things that Dredge uh, experts should file away as a possibility, right? I would say it's close in viability to Sun Titan, huh. perhaps. Yeah, it's Sun probably Titan in gets, that, it's probably in that close domain. That. Yeah. Yeah. Things that have been good and have built viable versions of dredge in the past but have fallen out of the wayside for more consistency and more disruption so i'm going to go with zero for cavalier of flame but that is with the acknowledgement that it's possible to construct a deck it's probably just not the best version of dredge today do you feel the same i do all right let's move on to lotus field which is a land that has hexproof which i love 
Lotus Field enters the battlefield tapped. When Lotus Field enters the battlefield, sacrifice two lands. Tap to add three mana of any one color. Steve, I feel like we're contractually obligated to review any card that has Lotus in the title and taps for three mana. Or Mox, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But the simple truth is, I don't think this is a vintage card. I mean, it has some benefits. Hexproof, in my opinion, is a fantastic ability on land. And if it were on any other land that was even more remotely playable, (laughs) I would say it would be fantastic in an environment filled with wastelands. Right. Because I love it. But the simple truth is, you have to draw two other lands with this, and you have to sacrifice them. And even Hexproof is not going to help you make up for the fact that you've really hindered your mana base to play this card. Now, some people out there might be pointing to the fact that this taps for three mana, and if you could untap it, you could build yourself a little bit of an engine. But we already have that ability in spades in Vintage. Between Workshop and Ancient Tomb, which ability doesn't produce three, but still is much more reliable, and Tolarian Academy and Gaia's Cradle and a few other fringe things, we have plenty of multi-mana lands with which to build engines around, potentially. And time has proven that aside from Tolarian Academy, most of them are either not worth it, or the act of tapping the land the first time is good enough, and no further untapping is needed, right? Right. I just don't think there's a place or a deck that was wanting this effect, or can really benefit from the amount of hoops you have to jump through to get to it. I agree. I mean, it is interesting that they made this card, and I... I was wondering how they would make it to avoid the uh, Lotus Veil errata problem, and that come in the yep. play tap nicely does that. So Yeah, and it's nice, um, and they made it much better than Lotus Veil in, in a number of capacities with the Hexproof right. and uh, the fact that you just sacrifice two lands when it comes in, so it's simpler to understand, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a cool card. I'm glad it exists, and for all the historic reasons with regard to the reserved list and Lotus Veil and that whole debacle, I, I'm really glad that it exists. Me too. But I don't expect to see it in Vintage anytime soon. Next, let's talk about Embodiment of Agonies. 1BB, Creature Demon. It's a 0-0, but you'll see why that is in a minute. Flying in Death Touch. Embodiment of Agonies enters the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter on it for each different mana cost among non-land cards in your graveyard. Each different mana cost. And note that it says mana cost and not converted mana cost. So Lightning Bolt and Ancestral Recall count as two different mana costs, right? Yeah. Doesn't count lands, but in the Vintage context, if you've filled up your graveyard with stuff, then it will count Moxin as a zero, for example. So obviously, we're not just going to be casting this on turn two or three for value in Vintage. That's, that's not where this need apply, right? So we can do much better. Yeah. But if you have any kind, and we've said this for so many cards throughout the ages, if you have some kind of engine that will put cards into your graveyard en masse, that also wants to cast a creature, this thing could come out and be pretty darn large. I don't think it's a great idea, but you could Oath into this, and the median Oath activation would probably dump, I don't know, 6 to 12 different mana costs into your graveyard, barring deck construction. So this thing could come down as a 10-10 on your first Oath or more. That's, I don't think, worth not worth it, right? right. But it's worth noting that you could have an Oath deck with a, an eminently castable creature well, such how, as this. How big do you think this is? You said you, you think it's a 10-10? I think in a median oath deck that I'm used to in recent history, yeah, you could what, you could reasonably have six Kelly to twelve oath deck with all well, the planeswalkers. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you you mock, but it's realistic to say if I'm playing that deck, I would tweak my card selection to have a variety of mana costs, right? So this says it, when it comes into play, right? So yeah. if you were to oath and it's like the second card from the top, and you don't get many cards in the graveyard, it could be really small, and you could be immensely disappointed. Absolutely, Absolutely. yes. 
hitting this early with oath is very bad yep on the flip side though i haven't done the math but it seems pretty clear to me that you could construct an oath deck that had more than 20 different mana costs in it i'm sure brian kelly could do that i'm absolutely yeah. certain <laughs> it's, it's worth noting that uh, mental misstep and brainstorm have two different mana costs right right so right. there's some weird c- consistencies and inconsistencies with the definition of mana cost in the vintage card pool and what's played i really don't think that just having a, an Oath creature you can cast for one BB is worth having one that otherwise doesn't affect the board in any significant way, large or not. If you told me this thing was always going to be 12-12 every time I Oathed into it, I would still tell you no thanks, right? Which kind of begs the question, and I, I thought that you might be interested to go to, how big would a creature have to be for you to play yes. it just because it was flying in big? <laughs> I was wondering that, but I didn't say it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. Uh, especially with Urborg around these days, you know, you can play, you could play this in like a, you know, in all many different kinds of decks, even those with dread, but, um, true. It's hard. It's hard to envision that you could get, yeah, you could get a, high enough. I mean, would it, ha- it might just have to be 2020. That's probably the answer. <laughs> I agree. I, I thought that was going to be your conclusion. And it is mine as well. In order for a creature to be reliably big enough for you to want to just have it in your vintage deck as a, as a somewhat vanilla creature. It would have to be big <laughs> enough to, to one-shot people. Uh, that's awesome. Well, now, I love vintage. I, I would, I would caveat that a little bit. I guess at this mana cost, I wouldn't. I would, if it was a twenty twenty, you wouldn't be playing oath. You'd just be playing four of these and casting them. But um, so you have to. There's a little bit of calculus between what would go into an oath deck because of its mana cost and what would just be a castable creature. At one BB, I would play something that was a. Uh, I don't know. 15 <laughs> i guess <laughs> it wouldn't have to be a 2020 if it's at this mana cost right right but no. that's not reliably we're the talking case at this mana cost though yeah yeah exactly um okay so we're gonna go with zeros on embodiment of yes. next is chandra acolyte of flame chandra costs one rr legendary planeswalker chandra she has a starting loyalty of four with three abilities the first zero loyalty put a loyalty counter on each red planeswalker you control so functionally it's a plus one zero loyalty create two one one red elemental creature tokens they have haste sacrifice them at the beginning of the next end step and then minus two you may cast target instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard if that card would be put in your graveyard this turn exile it instead so this is a strange concoction of abilities a three mana planeswalker that can Make two one ones that have haste and then they die. So you could pressure a planeswalker, I suppose. You know, it's, I mean, it's zero loyalty, so it is a game winning effect uh, in the long enough time scale. She can put counters on herself and other red planeswalkers like Dak Faden. Or, Why didn't it just say know, plus Sarkin. one, put a loyalty counter on every other planeswalker you control? Why does that really be a zero? I really don't know. It kind of bothers me and, on some level. <laughs> I know. And then this minus two ability is a quasi snapcaster ability, right? It's akin to recoup. You get to do it twice if you don't do anything else with this walker, right? You do it the turn she comes down, and then you do it again next turn, and she's dead. But you do have to pay the mana for the card in question. So if you want to flashback Ancestral Recall, you're going to have to pay one RR and then play you in the same turn to do it right away. There is a bit of a pedigree for Planeswalkers allowing you to flashback stuff in Vintage, right? Jace Telepath Unbound, for example. He requires a fair bit more investment in terms of time and energy to get to the point of doing that. She just does it the turn she comes down. Granted, the, the card must cost three or less, so you can't flashback gush like Jace likes to do. But otherwise, the common targets for Jace are the common targets here. 
I feel like this card is just one board impacting ability away from being actually very good. Agreed. If the second ability was more like Ren and Six, for example, where yeah. you could shoot something for one, then I'd be in there. Or if these tokens were persistent, yes. right? If they didn't have haste and they sat yeah. around. It's like we have a mind melt. Too- you're, you're reading yeah. my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> the, tar- the card would be too good if it made two tokens for free every turn. But you get my point. Something that ma- produced a token that lived in this card would be pretty great. As it stands, I feel like I, we have, we're just completely flush with ways to flashback cards now <laughs> between Snapcaster, JVP, and Anarchist now. The, zero, the blue-red Xerox decks don't need for this effect for three mana, it's right? It's so true. It's so true. I mean, th- th- there's so much competition at that. I wonder if to make the most of it, you need to have another Chandra, honestly, or some other Red Planeswalker. Um, you could play this in a deck with Renin 6 and Dak Faden. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, so the last, of, I think this card is good, and I think it's playable. I think okay. your point is that it needs to be, to be great, it needs one more useful ability. Mm-hmm. The, I do think the two one ones is, uh, sorry, three ones, sorry, it's one one. They're one ones. Yeah, yeah. is just too weak to be really of much use to anything. I mean, what are you going to do yeah. with that at most? You're, you're pinging your opponent for two, or you're pinging, I mean, what you're really going to be doing is toggling between the top ability and the bottom ability. Right. I think that's probably accurate. I think so. A lot of times you just play this and plus her so that you're going to get two flashbacks without her dying. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, the flashback ability is very powerful. I mean, it's unlike, great. Unlike Dreadhorde Anarchist, which requires a, it requires an attack step or JVP, which you have to flip. You know, this yep. is this is eminently castable in the you know the Xerox deck uh, at Red Red One, and it, it's yeah. immediately immediately useful. Um. You can re and, you can reframe this card as a kind of snapcaster mage, like a sorcery speed snapcaster. Yeah, and in that context, it's a little bit easier to see it being good. Meaning, it, it doesn't work on counter magic, but you can still just go red red one and then pay two more mana and flashback time walk. Right. Right. It does do that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and in that kind of role, if you've got five mana, this is actually really really good. And you don't you you don't have to pay the mana cost, right? No, you do. You do. That's even worse. You do have to pay. Yeah, the mana unlike cost, Redmond, yeah. Doesn't force you to do that for the one or less. Yeah. So I, I mean, think it's right on. The, I think this is yeah, right on the bubble. I think it is. I think it's right on the edge. Yeah. There. So it's situationally better and situationally worse, which is something we normally celebrate, right? Yes. So what does this do that other cards don't? This allows you to flash back more expensive cards than the Arcanist can. It doesn't require another turn, which JVP and Dreadwater Anarchist do. It's immediately True. useful. True. And Snapcaster has a, a wider. Uh, I don't know if it has a wider berth than Snapcaster Mage. It doesn't hit well, Gush. It doesn't hit the Dig and Treasure. Yeah. Which it Snapcaster, doesn't hit Counter Magic. Doesn't hit which Counter is Magic, the big which Snapcaster yeah. does. It can still hit Pyroblast for removal purposes against like Narset. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. If you had a deck, uh, gosh, it's tricky. If you had a deck that was a preordained deck, but it also had more sorceries that cost two or more, I'm thinking Grixis that has a. A t- maybe a tinker and a uh, a demonic tutor, right? Yeah. This gets a little better than Arcanist in that kind of deck, in my opinion, right. because of the ability to flashback those two and three mana spells. Yeah, I mean, you can flashback draw sevens with this, which is pretty funny. Um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, it just yeah. that's not where Vintage is, and it, Vintage hasn't been there for a long time. Well, and I mean, if you're looking for... So, you want... So, we're getting on something here, because you could do that already with Snapcaster, right? And Snapcaster's yeah. not played in but, draw seven decks for that reason. there's a big difference reason. between the two, but yes, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. There's a big difference cost-wise, but you would want this effect if you're trying to prolong the game, right? 
yeah. you would prefer this because this only gets good like Arcanist does if the game's going to go for three, four, five more turns. True. Right? So this is kind of a, a control-ish. This, this, this card is inherently taking the control role in Vintage. Oh, man. I, I need to see what players like Matthew Murray can do with this. I'm going to go non-zero <laughs> because I think there's just too much of a chance that someone has this as a one-of and thereby it appears in a top eight. So I'm going to take non-zero. Um, you know, because you can have like 59 awesome cards in one of this and, and make top eight, you know? So, <laughs> well, that's how I felt about uh, Ashiok. <laughs> well, Ashiok, Ashiok, by the way, has lots of top I'm joking. Eights. I know. I'm joking. But the one thing um, about Ashiok that I just want to point out is Ashiok is brutal. It's a game one great card against Dredge, and which, which because of its metagame presence, I think makes Ashiok even better. So, um, you know, anyway. Um, it's worth noting that. Um, various uh there have been undefeated league decks online with uh sarkon uh fireblood the (laughs) the mana the the planeswalker with this same mana cost totally different abilities mind you sarkon does totally different things it's looting and mana production but uh, a one rr planeswalker with some let's call it challenging interactions in vintage you know uh has had a little bit of success at the league level but not in challenges interesting so i think that pretty much sums up the fact that this card is right on the cusp. I w- and would not be surprised at all to see Matt Murray play this in a league uh, maybe several times. He really liked the latest Sarkon for its ability to pump other Planeswalkers, and that thing costs five. So are you so, going to take the non-zero or the zero? And then we can debate the No, I'm going to stick with zero. I think okay. this is the kind of card that you can you can five zero <laughs> a league with, but no one's going to top eight a challenge with it. Well, That's that, my opinion. That allows me to safely pick one. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> By the way, do understood. We, has anyone risen to the Urza challenge? Do we know yet? Oh, it's not interesting. I hadn't looked. We need to hashtag that Urza challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you can get a win. <laughs> Just so I can get a win. You're, that's very generous of you. So yeah, that was a little tiny jab. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't that tiny, really. Oh wow. Um. So. Uh, I need to search for the right terms because when you search for Urza, you get um, you get Karn Scion of Urza. Yeah, I so, mean, I know I know Matthew Murray and Justin Gennari were working hard on the Urza challenge, but I don't I don't think they right. quite got there. So let's go Lord High Artificer, <laughs> and not yet, not for thirty two players or more. But let's take a look and see if anyone from a smaller event has. Okay, yeah. So Justin Gennari has gone undefeated with Urza in leagues two times now. Yes, but that doesn't meet our criteria, unfortunately. Nope, not yet. Justin, if you're listening to this, I have supreme hope in you. Urza Urza will come through for you. (laughs) All right, let's move on to one, uh, help me out here, Dracuseth, Maw of Flames. By the way, Urza and Mystic Forge have some pretty good synergy, just saying. Wow, yeah, no kidding. Okay, so I don't know if I'm getting this right, but I think it's... Dracuseth or Dracuseth Maw of Flames. Four RRR, legendary creature dragon. It's a 7 7 flyer. Whenever Dracuseth Maw of Flames attacks, check this out. It deals four damage to any target and three damage to each of up to two other targets. So awesome. Yeah. So this is in the Inferno Hellion or Inferno Titan, excuse me, model. Right. Right. And that is the context in which some of our listeners mentioned this is if you oath this up, well, let's put it this the other way. Can this play a similar role to Inferno Titan in the Titan Oath deck? No. Well, and why is that? Well, I think that, I think that the gap between Red Red Four and Red 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 Four 
is pretty <laughs> significant. It's more than just a mana. It's it's yeah. like a mana and three quarters. Yeah, um, I'm with you. And um, and I, of course, the whole purpose of Inferno Titan is that you also. I just think Inferno Titan has better ability. I think the fact that it, when it attacks, you get to do it. I think is more valuable than just the burst at once. And I don't well, know. Well, this is on attack too. Sorry. This is on. This is an attack trigger as oh, well. Oh, okay. It's oh my god, I completely so, misread it. So yeah. you can dome your opponent for four yeah. and kill up to two of their creatures for three. Wow, the fact that it doesn't do it when it comes into play, though, which Inferno Titan does, is, is yeah. a disadvantage. Agreed, because totally. Inferno Titan can kill a Planeswalker immediately. Precisely. That is what I was about to say. I think that this is an impressive card, and when Oath into, and then the, uh, the, you know, the less likely case that you can cast it, this is going to be just fine. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's just that you're never going to get to that point if you're trying to cast it because of the more restrictive mana cost. And you're going to lose some games when you resolve this because it doesn't do anything when it comes in, right? To your point, your opponent's Narset deck or Jace or whatever that you would normally be able to pick off with an Inferno Titan, it gets to live for another turn. And the combination of those factors means you're just too far behind, I think, for this card to be good enough. Agreed. Next, let's talk about Mu Yanling, Skydancer. She is one UU, legendary planeswalker Yanling, two loyalty, which is more important. Two loyalty. Yeah. Three abilities. Plus two until your next turn, up to one target creature gets minus two, minus zero, and loses flying. Minus three, create a four four blue elemental bird creature token with flying. And minus eight, you get God. an emblem with islands you control have tap draw a card. Wow. So, yeah, that emblem is that emblem is serious business. One of the best emblems I've ever seen. <laughs> God, right? So, Jesus let's talk Christ. about these first two abilities, though, because if this card, if you're ever going to get to emblem this card, it's going to have to survive for quite a long time. She has two loyalty when she starts, and assuming you plus her when you play her, because that's your only four. choice. Yeah, she'll be at four, which means you need two more turns after that to get her to eight of her staying alive, and then you can alter. Now, you could start alternating between her plus and minus ability to create 4-4 four, four flyers, and my instincts tell me that depending on the nature of the deck and the nature of the game in question, you could probably win the game with those 4-4 four, four flyers before you even got to draw a card yeah. off of one of your islands, depending on how you were trying. So I think there's an inherent tension in how she's designed for that reason alone. I think for her to be good, she needs to be able to give you a 4-4 four, four flyer immediately. I mean, I think obviously right. would be insane in any other format. But <clears throat> I think you're right. If that second ability was minus two, it would yeah, make a huge difference. Exactly. And if she could still start with two loyalty, but mm -hmm. you need to have that choice. So if like yes. imagine if the second ability was minus two and the first ability was like look at like scry, you know, just scry. Yeah. Then we would be having an interesting conversation. But as it is, I think this card is a fool's errand. Fool's yeah, fool's I do too. I think she's too vulnerable and her plus ability, while it can lock down a couple of certain types of creatures in vintage, namely revokers, right? Snapcaster mages. It's not strong enough. Our experience with JVP has taught us that giving a creature minus two, minus zero is not enough to keep him alive. And it, it will be less so with her, which who starts with only the four loyalty. Yep. Yeah. I don't think trying to rush to this emblem is going to be a winning endeavor for this card. And I think a couple of games played with her and minusing her for a 4-4 flyer that also, unfortunately, is blue will quickly expose the fact that she's also very, very weak to Pyroblast coming in going. Yeah, even, she would need to cost blue one to get even, and maybe start with four loyalty to get even close to the conversation about ultimate, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so, I think you're right. Or have the ultimate be six minus six instead of. Agreed on all fronts. 
Next up is a shoe in manifold <laughs> key. Yes. This is an Horrible artifact. Key. For a, yeah, a single mana. It has one tap colon untap another target artifact. Three tap target creature can't be blocked this turn. This is just mostly a voltaic key with upside, with the tiny caveat that it can't untap itself, which in a vintage context is I don't think ever going to matter, but it is in the gr- broader scheme of magic rarely relevant. So this is, and you've already observed it with reference to Thranforge, not Thranforge, Mystic Forge. This is going to replace Voltaic Key for the most part. There is some tiny reason to keep some Voltaic Keys. Which is? For the sake of variety. Yeah, Revoker and Needle and Sorcerer's Spyglass. And also that you can sink mana into itself. It can untap itself. Not that that really Uh, matters that much. uh, Yeah, it doesn't really matter that much. But uh, for variety's sake, so that you can't be totally shut out of Key Vault on the key side, there's some point in having variety, but I think that this is going to replace somewhere between 75 and 90% of the Voltaic Keys in Vintage. That is to say, it, in theory, it should. What, what, is there anything else I'm missing that would cause this card to not take over for Voltaic? I think you covered it. Well, I mean, it, it just gives you the ability to get... I mean, it, the second ability just puts it over the top. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the disadvantage of not being able to untap itself, I think, is small compared to the ability to potentially make a creature unblock. So. Absolutely. So let's talk quantities then. In June, it's going to be a lot. Voltaic, <laughs> yeah, well, not as many as you might think, I would say. In June, Voltaic Key put up 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, top 8. In May, Voltaic Key put up 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, top 8. April, 1, 2, 3, 4, which mirrors the trend in increase in Karndex. So at, at the moment, we're looking at seven per month, which this, seems like uh, the starting point for the is, current metagame. But Kevin, this is also going to see play in the PO deck that run Voltaic Key. You know, all the blue control decks that run Voltaic Key are going to switch to this as well. So uh, Yeah, and back in April, all those appearances were paradoxical appearances. Right. But in May and June, it was all Far. almost entirely mud. Yeah, there were so, no PO. There hasn't been a PO top eight since... May. Not true. P.O. top aided the uh, format with, challenge. Sorry, with a Voltaic key. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at Voltaic key yeah, specifically. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. So, not every P.O. deck plays Voltaic key. Not every Karn deck, apparently, plays Voltaic key. What about, like, so, it's not like a one-to-one. Decks. They're going to, they, yeah. you know. Well, there is- was one control slavery, yeah. So, it seems pretty clear to me that if you take the method that wow. we charted for Mystic, Mystic Forge. Forge and account for a bit of a downturn in shops decks, which I still believe will happen because of London, then there should be probably, call it, I would say, three to five manifold keys per month. How sad is that that this card will probably be the most played card from Vintage from the set? Just because whatever Mystic Forge is, it's, the Mystic Forge decks will have this, and then there will be decks <laughs> besides that run this. So it's Mystic Forge plus X. That's so sad. That's sad. Don't you think? I don't know. I don't know. Not. I mean, you were lamenting how much they've created new and splashy cards for vintage of late. So lamenting. I don't know. Yeah, you were talking about how, why are they going to keep printing cards with this with this stinking clause not, about being able to play the top oh, cards that, in your library? Oh, I was. I'm yeah. excited about the new cards that have seen print. I'm just lamenting that. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I want the I want the marquee on this set to be Mystic Forge, not Manifold. I see. So well, I think for all intents and purposes, that will be the case, <laughs> but. The simple truth is, is you you could be very much right. It could be that Manifold Key has 110 or 120% of yes. Mystic Forge's appearances. I think that's what we're looking at. 
So what did I say yeah. for Mystic Forge? 22? 22, I'll just go yeah. 20% over. That seems fine. Okay. So you want, what? Do you, how was that round two? You want uh, 26? Yeah, that sounds right. You okay. know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to go 24 just because some people will be stubborn and stick with a little. Uh, I was just about to ask for that. Not 100% of the people who should switch to Manifold Key will for various um, various cultural and, I would say, nostalgic <laughs> <Aesthetic>. reasons. <laughs> yeah, aesthetic reasons. Yeah. I myself am resistant because I've got some nice altered voltaic <laughs> keys. What a vintage uh, guy. <laughs> right. So I think that the number will track very closely with the Mystic Forge number, of course, for obvious reasons. But I also think... There won't be too much more above that. So it's really funny. What do I think is more likely that people will play Manifold Key in other decks like um, Grixis and Control Slayer and that kind of thing in, above and beyond the Mystic Forge decks versus people who just won't adopt Manifold Key because they don't want to? Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you know that's going to happen. Well, so I, I ironically, think- I feel like there would be fewer Manifold Keys than Forges. I feel India. like our range for Mystic Forge could be too low, so I'm comfortable having a high range for Manifold Key. Yeah, I'm going to go with 12 for Manifold Key. Wow. I'm going to go. I'm going to go less than Mystic Forge for the reasons I stated. Wow, interesting. Yeah, not that. I mean, this is this is a humorous prediction yeah. at you know at base value. Like it's not. Yeah. We're not going to read too much yeah. into being right or it's wrong. It's a here. psychological uh, estimation yeah. of the vintage player base. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that. I, I think that what you're missing though is that the paper percentage is such a small percentage of our next three month prediction that that's true like that this is this like 98 percent of this is going to be online online there's really no aesthetic difference but your point uh you know what you're right that's true that is much more a factor in paper than in in magic online all right last but not least veil of summer counts g for an instant now pay attention to this language because it's it's tricky draw a card if an opponent has cast a blue or black spell this turn, spells you control can't be countered this turn. You and permanents you control gain hexproof from blue and from black until end of turn. So there's three built, three different statements here, and they're at least one of them is completely unrelated to the other two. <laughs> yeah, they're not contingent on one another either. Yeah. You draw a card if your opponent has played a blue or black spell. So the draw is contingent on them having played a spell. Now, it's also but, contingent upon the time in which you played it, right? Because if you play it and then your opponent plays a spell, you don't draw a card. Uh, no. If the spell they played, if they play it, okay. If you cast this in your opponent Ancestrals in response, yes. you will draw a card. Because this will Because when resolve. your but, veil goes to resolve, yeah, they will have played a card. Yeah. But if you play this and then this re- they re- pass priority and this resolves and then they play Ancestral, you don't, you don't draw. <laughs> right. So if you're responding to their blue or black spell, you're going to draw. And if they respond to you with a blue or black spell, you're going to draw. Interesting. It's yeah. because it's just if they cast the spell. It doesn't have to be Correct. resolved. Correct. Yeah. And then the other two components are not contingent on anything else. Spells you control can't be countered this turn. That's just a standalone statement. So it right. makes your subsequent spells uncounterable. Covered, and, in, covered in bees. That's right. And permanent you control a protection from hexproof, excuse me, from blue and black. Not protection, yeah. importantly. It's hexproof. So let's talk about applications well, for the three components. Let's talk about the components. difference between hexproof and, and, and protection first. Let's be clear on that. Oh, sure, sure. So hexproof just means that you and the permanents you control can't be the target of blue or black spells or ability that your opponents can. That is one so, component of protection. So what's an example of that? Like they can't chain your Oath of Druids or something. 
Uh, correct. The, this would fizzle a bounce from Jace the Mind Sculptor. A targeted bounce. Well, that's the only kind of bounce for Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah. But, yeah. This would this would fizzle a Dak Faden activation targeting one of your artifacts. Yes. There you go. Now that's an interesting Whereas, application. So, protection has four components. It's the, the DET acronym. Damaged, enchanted, blocked, or targeted. Cool. Hexproof is only the targeted component of protection. Yeah. So it, your, your permanents can still be damaged, enchanted, or blocked, if they're creatures, of course. Um, so this is, so the, the three components are, you're going to draw a card if your opponent has cast a blue or black spell. I mean, that's not the primary application, right? You wouldn't play this card just to draw a card. It's just kind of a tacked-on benefit if you're using it to get the one of the other two effects, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, if this is going to work, it's also going to be a cantrip, <laughs> effectively. Yeah. So the, the second of the two... Uh, three abilities, I mean, which gives you and your spells, I mean, uh, uncounterability is nice. So you would theoretically play this in response to a counter spell. So it's functioning kind of like a counter on a counter, right? It's kind of like dispel in that sense. That's pretty much the only application I could think of in Vintage. Um, but it's worth noting that it is a very good counter spell because it will counter a fluster storm, right? Wow. Yeah, good point. So if you are putting tendrils, a lethal tendrils on the stack and your opponent plays fluster storm, this will stop that Flusterstorm and all its counters from countering all of your spells. So that's nice. It's worth noting that this doesn't stop Mindbreak Trap. No. Because Mindbreak Trap Exiles. does not counter. Yeah. So the third ability then, you would permanent two control gain the Hexproof. So this is just, you're going to, and, and rather than playing it in response to a spell, you're going to play this in response to an ability, theoretically, that targets one of your permanents, um, you or one of your permanents. Right. And is blue or black. So, so the aforementioned the Planeswalker activations that I mentioned so are a good example. So it essentially will automatically cantrip unless it's a Planeswalker activation. So it replaces itself. If it resolves... If you're using it for the counterspelling portion, yes. Yeah, and it can it can allow you to counterspell... It, 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 this can be counterspell or stifle, basically. And it uh, creates yeah. a shield around you. So yeah. it, it, it's it's a covered in bees. It's a Xanted Swarm effect, a City of Solitude effect, as well as... I mean, so this is a really multifaceted card. It does, it does the following things. It can trip. It can counter a spell. It can counter a... It can ca- sorry, it can counter a counter spell. Multiple, one or more counter spells. It can counter one or more activated abilities. Mm-hmm. And it can counter one or more targeted spells. So it, yeah, lightning bolt or, or tendrils. Yeah, so it basically does four things. <laughs> yeah. Despite three states. It's, pre- it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, this isn't a main deckable card invented, right? Like, because um, this does... It does very little against the workshop deck. I disagree. Neither does Pyroblast, but it's still main deck. Uh, yeah, you know that's that's a fair point. But I I would argue that Pyroblast is a more uh, omni useful card than this, even in the blue matchups, right? Yeah. This is this is more situational, but it has bigger upside than Pyroblast does because it can trip. This card is also interesting because it's like a Xanted Swarm you could play in an Oath deck. Like if your opponent, your you could then you can use this to protect your Oath from an Assassin's Trophy and even an Abrupt Decay. Good point. You can counter abrupt Very good decay. <laughs> counter abrupt decay with this. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean that's highly relevant, especially with bug being as good as it is at exactly. the moment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this is also just highly effective against dredge, right? Everything dredge is trying to do in the metagame right now, this is good again. It counters their counter magic. It counters their removal on your hate card. It's just generally good against dredge. How annoying. <laughs> no, you make good points. Um, wow. I mean, one of the things I always wanted to do was put Xanon swarms in my burning oak deck. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is actually a card I would have loved to have had in 2012 when I was dealing with keeper-type, bug-type control decks that were just obliterating me. Mm. Wow. 
This is also a nice flashback target for a Snapcaster or a Dreadhorde Arcanist. It's right. too bad that this can't stop you from getting wastelanded, though. Wow. Um, it says you and permanents you control gain hexproof from blue and black, so you're right. It uh, A colorless wastelander strip mine is not going to be affected by this, unless there's God. one corner case, which is involving uh, Painter's Servant. This card becomes <laughs> really sweet with Painter's Servant. How unbelievable would it be if you could play this and not get wastelanded, not have your spells countered, <laughs> not get abrupt decayed? You would just, oh, you would just frustrate the hell out of a bug pilot for a turn. God. <laughs> That's true. The fact that this can't stop wasteland is, is a, a moderate drawback. That mode would be really, really excellent in Vinted. So you, yes, I think you you've properly observed you that can't be, you can't yeah, be, you, this is a good role player for Oath. And also, I think. I think for like a DPS type deck that splashes green, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, you wouldn't go into green for this, no. though. Do you, don't you think that in the modern builds, well, uh, could, duress and thoughtsy still just do the job better? I mean, there are transformative sideboard decks. Like, what if you're playing DPS with sideboard oath, that kind of thing? You can play it. Okay, true. I'm there. Yeah. So I think that I don't think this is going to become a standard feature in oath, but I think it's kind of a techie thing for the reasons you said, especially the application against abrupt decay. That's really nice. Yeah. The, nice. It's not a it's not a game breaker, but it's a it's a pretty nice trick to have in an oath deck for that reason. So I think it's probably going to end up with non-zero uh, amount of play. I also think that uh, it feels like the sort of card that people might test in Rug Xerox as a anti-blue sideboard card. It's yeah. I don't think it's very good in that respect, but I do think some people will try it. Whether or not it's good enough to make top eight, I don't know. We'll see. But so I think. If we're going to see play from this card, it's going to be in probably in those two contexts. I Do you want this in lands? I don't think you want this in land. You're not as worried about counter magic in lands. No, I don't think so. Yeah. It's worth noting that this gives you hexproof from black, which means it stops ravenous trap. Interesting. So Interesting. I was going to say maybe does survival have a, a want for this? That deck is so thin on mana, though, that... I can't understand. I can't justify bringing in uh, hate, an anti-hate card that costs mana when you've got things like Force of Negation or Force of Vigor now to play with. Yeah, I'd be surprised if Survival ran this. Conceptually, it works for Survival though, in in a certain way. Stops your opponent from countering your Survival, but that just adds to its mana cost. That's that's inconvenient. It stops Ravenous Trap, which I know some players are bringing in against Survival. So that's some. But that deck is so mana hungry and mana light. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Actually, this. Survival is an interesting place for this, though. Yeah. Because survival is something where people will try and destroy your enchantment. Unfortunately, Definitely. they're destroying it with white card <laughs> instead of... <laughs> oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. That's a very good point. But, like, for survival versus dredge, is there any home in survival versus dredge? Because your dredge yeah. opponent is going to ley line you and bring in force of vigor, right? Yeah. Um, but they might have rat trap, and they'll, they'll try and force of will your stuff. Yeah, you need, you so this has a lot of applications yeah, in that matchup. Yeah, it's just so mana-hungry. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. What are you thinking? Are you thinking zero or non-zero? No, I'm thinking non-zero. I just think it's going to be a smattering of different kinds of play. Oath, and uh, that's what I'm just trying to see if this, if it's if it's really going to be a thing in survival. I don't think it will. It It's the kind of effect that that deck would really want in many post-sideboard matchups, but the mana is so tight, I don't, can't justify it. I just think there's enough small homes for this between Oath, rug bug and survival that someone's got to try it I, I just it just feels like a, a non-zero for me it feels like a one i don't think it's gonna become a staple or a standard by any stretch it just feels like it's it is playable are you in the same boat do you are you thinking non-zero here um no actually i'm thinking zero okay well i can live with that 
Won't be the first time. So at this point, you and I have predicted lots and lots of play for the Thran, sorry, the Mystic Forge and the Manifold Key. And then I took one on Veil of Summer and you took one on Chandra Acolyte of Flame. And honestly, I could see either one of those going either way on that. <laughs> Anything else that you want to review before we conclude? No, interesting set. Really interesting set. Great core set. Third great set in a row. Welcome to Vintage. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So that brings us to our closing question that we like to ask for many of our set reviews. Is what do you think is the most, uh, let's say, let's, what do you think, car- which card is going to have the most quantity of top eights using our method in the set? I think that that is an interesting question for the reasons we've already phrased and that Steve and I have demonstrated the differences in expectations between Mystic Forge and Manifold Key for that reason. So we want to hear which one do you think is going to have the greatest quantity of top eights. Right. And unfortunately, unfortunately, neither one of us are going to be at the NYSE 6. So I wish I could go. I got second at the last one and I've top eighted two of them, but um, I just can't make it this year. Kevin, I assume you're not going either. Yeah, that's correct. That that travel is not in the cards for me, so to speak. Any advice? But this should be a great event. Any advice you want to give to people who are going? Well, I would say just soak it in. I mean, the event is going to be filled with with vintage community people who just love the format, right? It's consistently populated by that that quality of person. So if you're there for the first time, I would say strike up a conversation, you know, get out on social media, see who's going to be there, see if there's some folks you've been interested in meeting in the community, that kind of thing. And because I think to a person, everyone who goes to that event is a major, major fan of the format. And the format is great for that reason. I'm sorry, the event is great for that reason. Well put. And with that... Thank you for listening to episode 92 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us on iTunes so that other players can find us. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.